Last week we began a spiritual journey through the joy book of the Bible, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I want you to know that uh, we'll be studying the Bible, but the goal of this journey is to truly discover biblical joy in our lives. That would be the goal. That's the application. That's the end game. That's <laughs> what we want to see happen. That you would truly discover biblical joy in your life. You know, it's not my goal that you simply learn about joy during this season together. What I'm praying will happen is that many of us will actually discover and experience biblical joy in a life-changing way. Is that too, is, is too big of a goal? I mean, it's... That's, that's a big goal, that people would actually have their lives changed, that people would actually find and discover the, the joy of the Lord through the application of true principles from God's Word. You know, last week we discussed the fact that there is joy to be found in Christ, especially when life is hard. Happiness is there when times are happy. But when times are hard... The joy of the Lord can shine out stronger because of the contrast. There's a certain discipline and, and, and things that, that we need to apply ourselves to in, in order to find joy through hardship. It's not natural. But this joy that I'm talking about is nevertheless findable. The joy of the Lord is discoverable for the believer. Because this joy is actually inside of you. If you have accepted Jesus Christ, you've put your trust in Him as your Savior, then there are some very special results of that. Fruits, the Bible calls them, like joy. Results of your salvation. Not only that you get to go to heaven in the sweet by and by, but that there are these fruits that are in you. That, and, and the fact is that if we look around, many times we, we have to admit that many, many people who claim to be Christians who follow Christ <clears throat> have apparently not fully discovered some of those fruits. In the Bible, joy is called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Spirit li lives within all who have trusted in Christ. <clears throat> Unfortunately, because of emotional baggage and sometimes our poor responses to the difficulties and trials of life, this gift, this fruit, may be so hidden away inside of you, so buried in bitterness or forgotten in despair that it is now difficult to find. For some of you, discovering or rediscovering the joy of the Lord will not happen as in a flip of a switch but in something more like a quest or treasure hunt. Many of you probably have some digging to do if you're going to regain what has been lost. Others of you need to receive this fruit called joy in the first place by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. If you have not done that, in a very real moment of surrender through a conversion of the soul, then you do not have the Spirit and you do not actually have the joy of the Lord. You can be happy at times, 
as someone who does not know Jesus, but without the Spirit within you, the joy of the Lord is simply not there to be found. If that's you, your quest of joy begins with saving faith in Christ and His gospel. Regardless of your situation in terms of whether you need to discover real joy through the experience of salvation or rediscover it because it has been buried, I promise you that the joy of the Lord is worth the search. What is this joy of the Lord? We talked about that for most of our time last week. To have the joy of the Lord does not mean you are necessarily in a good mood all the time or that a smile constantly crosses your face. Although a better mood and more smiles may be a side benefit of walking in joy. As Nehemiah put it, the joy of the Lord is our inner strength. And that in itself is a pretty good definition of this joy, inner strength. Practicing the joy of the Lord is more about operating from a position of contented strength than it is about being gleeful or euphoric. I don't think it's true that every Christian should have a bubbly personality, just giggling and, and smiling his or her way through life, please. That's clearly not what we see in the Apostle Paul, who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote our text for this series on joy. Paul was no Pollyanna, and he sat there writing Philippians from a Roman dungeon with chains on his wrists, not jumping up and down. He wasn't Mr. Effervescence. Frankly, Jesus wasn't so bubbly either many times, was he? In reality, both Paul and Jesus were pretty serious, intense, often heavy <laughs> people. They were sometimes stern and always challenging. The two of them said a whole lot of things that didn't make other people particularly happy either. So we need to be careful how we define a joy-filled life. The joy we are to discover is something much deeper and much more abiding than any personality-based attribute or temporary emotion. God may ask you to have a change of heart, but He is probably not asking you to have a change of personality. He gave you your personality. Joy is not a personality trait to acquire any more than it is an emotion that can be turned on and off like a switch. Joy is much more like peace than happiness, something to discover down deep inside, and obviously you may not completely find it within the scope of this series of sermons. Then again, maybe you will. Never underestimate the power of God's Word when it is preached. God changes lives through the preaching of His Word, and so regardless of how far you get in discovering joy through this season, my hope is that for each of us, progress is made and that we at least begin to unlock the joy of the Lord in our lives and in our church. As I studied the book of Philippians in preparation for this series, four and perhaps five secrets to real joy began to stand out in my mind. I truly believe that if we can apply these secrets, we'll be well on our way to becoming people who have discovered real joy. So here we go. The first secret, <clears throat> discovering real joy, is fellowship. Fellowship. Let me read our text for today. And we'll start with verse 3 
<clears throat> of chapter 1 in Philippians for this particular series. I'm going to use the NLT. Remember I told you I don't like to be stuck with anything. often use the New American Standard, but for this one, I'm going to use the NLT, which is kind of fun. Here we go. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. I always pray for you, and I make my request with a heart full of joy, because you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am sure that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus comes back again. It is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a very special place in my heart. We have shared together, defending the truth and telling others the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love for each other will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in your knowledge and understanding. And I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here, this is verse 12, has helped to spread the good news. And then down to verse 18, and I will continue to rejoice. Remember, rejoice is just repeating the joy of the Lord out. Rejoice. For I know that as you pray for me and as the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will all turn out for my deliverance. Hopefully you can already see that one of the keys to finding joy is that we must find it together. Remember this, joy is not found in isolation. I do not believe you will find the fullness of the joy of the Lord in a monastery or alone in the wilderness. Solitude is extremely important for spiritual development, but when it comes to joy, the Bible points us to community, not isolation. To be specific, our text in Philippians is going to show us that joy will be best developed in our lives through the fellowship with other Christians that happens when we fully participate in a local church. That's in the Bible? Yes, it's in the Bible. It is important to remember that this book of the Bible that calls us to joy is actually a letter written to a specific church which met in a specific place in the city of Philippi, which was located in Macedonia, now northern Greece. These truths we are going to study were to be shared and applied within the context of that specific committed-to-each-other group of Christ's followers. The point is that as we study this, we should apply it to ourselves in the same way, not so much as individuals, but as a church. See, one of the biggest keys to experiencing the joy that the Lord has of the Lord has always been wrapped up in the fact that his people are together, together, and they are committed to each other like a spiritual family. That's what is required for fellowship to occur, an ongoing commitment to being together. Let me say that another way. If you are not committed to being together with others as a part of one particular local church, you do not have biblical fellowship koinonia in the Greek. And you're missing out on one of the major secrets to discovering real joy. What is biblical fellowship? As a kid growing up in the church, I thought fellowship was a place. 
At our church, we had something called the Fellowship Hall. Anyone else? The Fellowship Hall. Let me tell you, as a child, that made no sense to me whatsoever. First of all, this place where we met was not a hall. Church had halls, really long ones. But this so-called Fellowship Hall wasn't one of them. So that didn't make sense. And besides, nobody ever told me what fellowship really was. All I knew was that the fellowship hall was the place where you had your potluck dinners. <laughs> Usually once each month, often followed by a business meeting where sometimes people got really upset with each other. <laughs> but all I really knew about fellowship was that a place was named after it and um, connected to that place was a kitchen. There were rectangular tables and folding chairs, and that was where you always ate deviled eggs. <laughs> Which, if you think about it for a kid, I mean, where else do you get them? You don't get them anywhere else. It's not like your mom makes them at home for dinner. No, you just have them in the fellowship hall. That's where you have deviled eggs. And for a kid, I mean, <clears throat> why are there always these eggs of the devil <laughs> every time we meet in the fellowship hall? And sure, they're, they're delicious. But still, maybe that was the reason for the bad meetings sometimes afterwards. I don't know. There was always green bean casserole, which is not delicious. I don't care. It, you brainwashed yourself if you think that's good. And, of course, the mystery items, most of which were topped with Velveeta cheese. As far as I understood it, they... They might as well have called the place the cheese-covered casserole hall or the gooseberry pie hall. or the, I don't know what this is, but there's a can of cream of mushroom soup in it hall. <laughs> and so, in my young mind, fellowship lasted however long it took to get your food, eat it, get out of there. And even though I was a kid who didn't, just didn't get it, truth is that in the minds of many of the adults in that church meeting together for a meal once a month, was pretty much their definition of fellowship too. But folks, that isn't even close to what the Bible calls for in terms of fellowship in the church. Not even close. Fellowship is doing life together. Fellowship is functioning like a functional family. Fellowship is about doing great things for God together as a team. And it's about being there for each other and helping each other and loving each other and teaching each other and so much more. In the vision for Go Church, we use the word sharing to communicate this part of what it means to be the church because I like verbs. You could never tell by the name of the church, right? Go Church. I like verbs. And so if you'll take a look at the screen, and we're not going to go through any, walk through this at all, um, but if you notice on this side, the second step in the circle, which is kind of like our discipleship strategy, you see the word sharing. <clears throat> sharing. By the way, when you get around to blessing, that's what we did Friday when we provided lunch here for the teachers, but sharing each of these areas has various tools or mechanisms to help us accomplish this part of our vision. And so when, sh when it comes to sharing, uh, we have some things and we have some things that we haven't developed yet. And the biggest, the biggest mechanism for, for this part of what it means to be the church that's going to happen, that's going to cause this to happen or allow this to happen in our church is will be called share groups. Share groups, life groups, small groups, whatever you want to call it. We're going to call them share groups. 
And the biggest thing that will happen in share groups is sharing, hence the name. And so we're going we're gonna to share with each other like the early church shared with each other. And that's probably coming in the fall, more than likely, is when we'll maybe be ready. You know, we have to have leaders. We have to have homes. We have to have people that actually want to show up and don't wanna, that are willing to add something to their schedule. But share groups will be coming, and they'll be meaningful. But right now, we have several ways that you can uh, get involved in fellowship. We have our men's and women's ministries, which is a great place. Those who are attending those regularly, I guarantee you that they're experiencing um, koinonia and this, this kind of fellowship. We have these quarterly meals after church like we had last Sunday. We try to do that about once a quarter. We've had two of those so far, and we're six months old, so we're on pace for once a quarter. Uh, we're going to, we have ministry teams. There's a, a lot of fellowship that happens in ministry teams. It's set up and tear down crew, our hospitality ministry team, children ministry team. There's some fellowship that happens in that and other teams. We're going to have these prayer or and fellowship nights. We had one at our house. The way you get invited to that is by serving. If you're serving in some way, uh, you'll, you'll get an invitation to, to come to, to one of those, those nights um, where we'll have some prayer and some fellowship together. Uh, discovery classes is another place where you can connect. The, the next one will be scheduled soon. That's where people who are potentially thinking about membership will come and learn about the vision of our church. Some fellowship happens there. We have a meal. Online, I know it's kind of shallow, but there's some fellowship. You can learn some things about people. I stalk many of you. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't have time. But you can connect with me or others in our church. You know, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, but not just me. Connect with some other people in our church, and you can, social media can, can I know there's some evil and bad stuff to it, but if you can, you can focus on the good, there, there can be some connection there. Service and outreach projects that we'll be doing. Um, you know, I mean, uh, we asked last Sunday, anybody wanted to help us do the lunch uh, Friday, and, and a couple, Frank and Jan, volunteered, so Christy and I and Frank and Jen had some awesome fellowship in getting to provide that lunch for the teachers. So outreach and service projects, another way to connect. I, I, I do want to explain at this point that you can't program sharing or fellowship into the church. It's true that we will need to provide opportunities, but this must develop naturally. You just, you just can't really start a church with all that stuff going full steam from the beginning because it takes time for people to decide to commit to each other. Most aren't ready for deeper commitment and fellowship at first. That's part of why church planning is not a three-month or six-month or one-year or even two-year process. Check back with me in three years. Maybe we'll be somewhere. We have to build slowly on what our current foundation can support. We don't want a mushroom. I don't want a mushroom. You know, I mean, I, morels are good, but I'm, I'm not looking for, okay, we don't want a toadstool. Nobody wants a toadstool, right? We want a cedar. And so that means roots have to go down and foundation has to be built before you can put more on top of it. But enough nuts and bolts. I, I want to spend our time today seeking to understand how and why fellowship is one of the great secrets to discovering biblical joy in our lives. And based on Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, we're going to learn <clears throat> about three ways we can experience joy through fellowship in the church. So first of all, in the local church, joy is experienced through the fellowship of working partnerships. Joy is experienced through the fellowship of working partnerships. You know, in many ways, the church 
is a machine that brings people together so that something good can come out of it. One of those good things can be joy. Um, like this machine here. It brings a, a couple of things together that are pretty blah by themselves. Uh, water is blah. I mean, you know, coffee, have you ever, you know, if you don't, if you, don't, if you think this is good by your, itself, you know, I, I'll pop open one and you can throw it in your mouth and see that it's not very good by itself. But if we put it together in this machine, it's kind of like the church. And bring that water and that coffee together with the catalyst of heat, sort of like the Holy Spirit. Uh, what comes out is something that, for me at least, gives me a lot of joy. I mean, all you got to do is add one letter. Cup of Joe, cup of joy. You know, and it's interesting too, by the way, that Keurig actually in Dutch means church. I'm just kidding. I made that up just now, <laughs> right there. I got you for about two seconds. It does not. I don't know what it means. It's somebody's name probably. But anyway, we bring these things together. They weren't that great by themselves. People were Googling as I spoke. <laughs> it's it's kind of nice that there's no signal in here, actually. Uh, so who would like a it's strong black cup of coffee today? Anybody wants a little joy? I saw you first, Andy. All right. There you go, brother. Don't spill it. It's really against the rules. You're breaking the rules right now. <laughs> but I think they'll let us go for a sermon illustration. So does that bring you joy? Just a little bit, maybe? Oh, man. That's awesome. All right. So joy is experienced through the fellowship of working partnerships. Where do we find this in the book of Philippians? Well, everywhere. Everywhere in the book of Philippians is full of references that show us the joy that comes through the fellowship of working together. But look back at the verses I selected for today and notice the connection between joy and the working partnership of Paul and the church. Follow along in your listening guide or on the screen, verses 4 and 5. I make my request with a heart full of joy because you have been my partners. And spreading the good news about Christ. Paul says, I have a heart full of joy because of our working partnership. And then look at the end of verse 7. You have a very special place in my heart, he says. We have shared together, defending the truth and telling others the good news. Hopefully you see there again, there's joy in his heart as he says that. It's joy that comes from working together for the Lord. Verse 12, and I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters... That everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. Paul is saying, hey, I know we're not physically together right now. But I serve as an extension of you here. As your missionary here. And so our working gospel partnership is still bringing me joy. It's what's getting me through all of this. You guys back there are getting me through this. You're an, I'm an extension of your church and I hope... It brings you joy as well as I'm doing that. Who does that make me think about, by the way? My daughter, Tori, who is our missionary, who we've sent uh, to Mexico as we speak. And she is an extension of us, and it gives her joy to know that we're here, that she's part of us, and it gives us joy as we think about one of our own being overseas, sharing the gospel. And then at the end of verse 18, And I will continue to rejoice, for I know that as you pray for me, 
And as the Spirit of Jesus Christ tells me, this will all turn out for my deliverance. Paul rejoices because he is not alone. He knows that they have his back. Too many Christians are living out, trying to follow Jesus, living out their Christianity alone. There's no joy in that. Paul's joy flows from this working partnership. As disciples of Jesus, we've been given a job to do. We are not called to do that job alone. We're called to do it in the context of a community of faith called a church. Paul enjoyed a working partnership with the church at Philippi. Clearly, this partnership gave him great joy. And don't miss the fact that this was a working partnership. It is very clear in the scripture that the joy came in what they were accomplishing together. That, that is, working hard toward the purposes of God together. We see this again in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The one purpose Paul spoke of here is following Jesus in expanding the kingdom of God on this earth. This job, this mission of the church to share the gospel, to expand the kingdom of God, to help more people know Jesus, to see God's kingdom, His ways, His love, His truth spread that we do that together that's the one purpose that brings joy that happens through fellowship we have work to do and make no mistake we're called to do it together when we do God's work together we can experience joy that is complete it makes me think of when I, in our last church, we, we had deacons, and we'll have deacons here eventually, and deacons are, are not people who control the church. They're people who do ministry. And uh, so that's what our deacons were, and, and that's what we developed in my last church. And they would make visits, and they would go to hospitals, and they would help people with their yard or whatever kind of ministry was needed. Um, particularly, in Acts 6, it's clear that they, their ministry very much mostly was to people in the church and who were part of the church. And so, but what I wanted to mention was one of the th kind of rules that I set and asked them to follow is don't go anywhere alone. Go at least in twos. Um, because ministry done together brings joy, brings fellowship, which brings joy. Now, there's something else that is important to notice about this partnership it is a three-way partnership the fellowship of this working partnership involves the individual the church and God notice again what Paul says back in chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now, and I'm sure that God, who began this good work within you, will continue His work until it is finally finished. 
And again, in verse 19, he references this three-way partnership saying, For I know that as you pray for me, and as the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will all turn out for my deliverance. So we see Paul as the individual. We see the church at Philippi who have been his partners, and we see God who began the work in the first place and will finish it, finish it, all three working together. There is a three-way working partnership that is clear in these verses, and within that partnership is a beautiful fellowship that results, results in joy for all three. But don't forget that this three-way fellowship with each other and with God is a working partnership. We have a job to do. God doesn't just do it all for us. When we are accomplish, accomplishing what God has called us to do together in Him, a joy-filled fellowship develops. I think of um, <clears throat> the old farm communities, or still today in Amish settlements where they have something called a barn raising. Know what I'm talking about? You know, the, the whole community comes together builds a barn for a neighbor in like a day. And, of course, there's home-cooked food and, and, and fun stuff, but there's also an awful lot of sweaty, hard work. Some of us have experienced that kind of thing, maybe on a mission trip, uh, maybe growing up in smaller communities. And I'm here to tell you there's just no other fellowship like working hard together fellowship. Someday, God willing, we will be given land. That's called faith. And on that land, we will build a church building. I'd say it's more than likely that we will use volunteer labor uh, for some of it, which will mean that we might do some of the work together. I'm looking forward to that. We've done that before. It's wonderful. One day we'll put on ministry events like VBS and we'll do community service projects and we'll host major outreach events that will take work to put together. And we could think about the work we already do every single week, week after week. Have you noticed Sundays come around with amazing regularity? <laughs> I've noticed that. Every week, setting up, tearing down, uh, preparing for the service, putting packing it all back up. And, and those of us who do it regularly know that when everybody comes together and works hard toward a common goal, there's, there's, there really is a sweet fellowship that can bring joy into your life. And so I'm telling you that joy is experienced through the fellowship of working partnerships. Originally, this was the halfway point in my sermon, but get what, guess what? I've decided to, to stop at this point, and we're going to have a to-be-continued sermon and finish it next week. And I'm just going to wrap up uh, by talking about one more thing, and then we'll be done for today. A little bit shorter than usual, I think. I haven't looked at my watch, but I do want to say a word about something I've mentioned a little bit both times, but... You know, I, I think that um, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough many times in our church. I know in, in churches I've, I've been in, um, and in especially in, in, the, in, the, in light of whether or not you're saved, just to be honest. 
Um, do you really think that God, the God of the universe, can come into your life and you're not going to change? I mean, think about it. Have you ever really thought about it? And, and, and now, now, granted, there's something called being filled with the Spirit. There's, there, even God still allows for our free will, even in the Spirit. And in fact, you can have the Spirit and you can suppress. And the Bible says you can quench the Spirit and you can push Him down into a corner until He's barely perceptible. So I understand that. But if, if you never really changed, if, if, if nothing ever really happened, if you don't have f- fruits like joy that are developing in your life, you know, the, I mean, the Bible's pretty clear that you need to go back and check and see and make sure that you really ever put your trust in Christ. I mean, there's so many ways to, to mess this up. And so, you know, I mean, I, what do I do? I look back at my life and certainly not been perfect, and I've had plain, make plenty of mistakes still to this day, but if I look back to when I was saved, I can see the evidence of God and how he's grown me and how he's led me to do things and how he's changed me, and yes, how he's given me joy that that can endure through hard times. And, and, and that, this is very biblical. The Bible is very clear that we should look for these evidences as a way of knowing whether or not we really ever, you know, became a Christian. You know, you don't just sort of, you know, I think I'll be a Christian or I'm going to convert and be a Christian. That's not a biblical use of the word convert. Um, God converts us, and he does that on our faith. We do have to come, to, we do have to accept Christ. We do have to put our trust in Christ. I'm not on that other extreme, but when you do that, when you make that choice, when you receive Jesus, all the different ways we say it, when you're born again, we say it a lot of different ways, when your life is never going to be the same because the Holy Spirit comes into your life, stuff starts happening, and more than anything else, I think we look at the fruits of the Spirit. And So do you have joy? And if you don't have joy, but you think you were saved forever ago, something is wrong with this picture. You know, and I just wanted to talk very candidly about the fact that I think there are many people today who just sort of say they're a Christian, but never really received the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean that we're not a church that believes in the second blessing. Sorry if you do, no offense. So that's not what I mean. I believe, I mean, the Bible says if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved in Romans. Uh, those, who, those who have the Spirit, those who are saved have the Spirit. So I'm not talking about something like down the road at some point you got this experience or, or something. I'm talking about is the Spirit there? And if He ain't there, then you aren't saved. And... Um, if the fruits aren't there, then you would have to wonder if the Spirit's there, and if the Spirit's not there, then, you know, it's not just, uh, when you face the Lord, are you going to just say, remember that time when I did whatever? I mean, you can say that, but there better have been something that happened in your life at that moment. Conversion has to have happened. You have to have been born again. You must be born again, Jesus said. So, on the one hand, and this is hard for preachers because we don't want to cause people who truly are saved to doubt, you know, and just sort of spend their life wondering, am I saved, am I not saved? I mean, Romans 8, or 10, 9, and 10 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and he was raised from the dead, then you'll be saved. So keep that in mind. But have you really believed? Have you really put your trust in Christ? And you don't want to mess around with it, right? You, you want to know for sure. 
And I also think that baptism is the biggest moment, really, in a way, for a lot of people, you know. We used to talk about walking the aisle. People would tell their testimonies, the churches I grew up in, and you would hear their testimony, and the whole testimony would be, when I went forward. I mean, that's okay. I mean, I went forward. We d- I did that, okay. It's not like I'm saying there's something wrong with that. But that's not how you're saved. You're not saved by going forward or walking the aisle. And as far as the moment to remember is more than anything is your baptism because that's your public profession of faith. Something had to happen before that. Don't get me wrong. You don't just get dunked and you're saved without any kind of faith. But, but the baptism is the moment when I think a lot of people remember because it's the time when you took your stand for Jesus. And so we have people all, all throughout, people who come to this church who in all different places along, along that. I talked to a surprising number of people who, who say they think they put their trust in Christ a long time ago, never were baptized. And they, they miss out. They never took the first step. They're trying to take step three, four, and five in their discipleship, but they never took step one. And that, that makes a difference. I think something, something spiritual and meaningful happens when we're baptized. It did for Jesus. He heard from the Father. This is my son in whom I'm beloved, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so where are you on that, you know? Have you ever been born again? You know, has it happened? Maybe, maybe, maybe you'd like to talk to someone about that. Let me know on your response card. We'll, we'll have a conversation. If you're not comfortable meeting one-on-one, I'll email with you if that's what, I'll text with you if that's all you can handle. I'd rather meet with you, but if that's all, I'll, if that's what you want, we can do it over text. Uh, whatever you want, but, but make sure that you've been born again, that you've, the Holy Spirit has come in and started to change your life, and you can see that growth. And fruits like joy that develop. Have you had that, but you've never been baptized? July 14th, we're, we're going to have our first baptism, we're, a baptique, we're calling it. Uh, we're going to have a barbecue and a baptism at Abrams Park on July 14th. You won't be the only one. There's several people already signed up. So let me know that, and I'll talk with you and make sure you understand what that is and what it isn't. Or maybe you're just like me sometimes, and you know that you know that you know that you know Jesus. <laughs> but... Where's the joy lately, right? And so that application should have been clear, hopefully, with point one. I got point two and three still to come next week. But, you know, point one being get involved in a church, in a church family, and get to know people and start rubbing shoulders and do some stuff, you know, a working partnership, and see if that doesn't spark some joy in your life. All right, so I hope you'll let me know if you need to talk, if you are ready to make a decision. There's places on your response card to do that, and um, let me pray. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.go.com gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.